there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, join Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino as they fall deep into the stories of the illustrated man. Two tramps meet on the side of the road. One of their bodies is almost completely covered in tattoos. They are not tattoos! They are skin illustrations! Excuse me, skin illustrations. They'll discuss the differences between the book and the movie, an unexpected star in the form of a dog, and how a Rod Steiger performance elevates a film. Next up, Claude Chabrol's Dirty Hands. Another amazing Rod Steiger performance, Quentin and Roger refuse to ruin the ending of this film for you. With Hitchcockian connections and unexpected performances, you'll be happy you didn't get spoiled. Finishing up today's episode is Alfredo Zacharias's Demonoid, Messenger of Death. A woman and her husband unearth an ancient curse in the form of a demon that takes control of your left hand. With lots of gags and amazing effects, this film will keep you entertained from its explosive start to its fulfilling end. And here they are now. Here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Okay, thank you, everybody. This is Quentin Tarantino. And Roger Avery. And this is the Video Archives podcast. This episode, it's not officially a uh, theme episode, even though our double feature has the same actor. And he's very demonstrative in both movies. It's almost hard to get past him. Um, I'm not trying to get past him. He's terrific. But this is... Without it officially being a theme episode, this is as close to a theme episode, uh, and the theme is Rod Steiger. And the first movie that we're watching is The Illustrated Man. 1969. 1969, science fiction classic based on the Ray Bradbury novel, starring Rod Steiger, his wife Claire Bloom, and Robert Drivas. Don't dare stare at The Illustrated Man. There are fearful pictures on his skin. But the most fearful thing is tattooed on his soul. The Illustrated Man, Ray Bradbury's masterpiece of the supernatural. An incredible journey to the outer limits of imagination. 
The Illustrated Man, starring Rod Steiger and Claire Bloom from Warner Brothers 7 Arts in Technicolor. This picture is rated M. And now playing exclusively at Pacific's Pickwood Theater in Wendy Westwood. I actually saw this at the theater in 1969 when I was seven years of age. Um, I saw it because we saw a lot of movies back then, and they used to show the trailer a lot for The Illustrated Man at the theaters. I'm like, oh, I want to see that. That looks cool. I want to see The Illustrated Man. I want to see The Illustrated Man. So me and my mom and my stepfather, we, we went to see The Illustrated Man. Okay, but right now I'm going to read the back of the box. This is a Warner Home video. We look to science fiction to glimpse the future. And no science fiction writer has more gripping or disturbing ability to make the future real than Ray Bradbury, the author whose works like Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles, and Something Wicked This Way Comes qualify him as one of the genre's supreme shapers. The Illustrated Man brings to the screen one of Bradbury's most terrifyingly imaginative visions, the story of a man whose very body paints pictures of horrors to come. Rod Steiger stars as Carl, a carnival roustabout and master weaver of tales whose skin has become almost entirely illustrated with freakishly vivid tattoos. Skin illustrations. Skin <laughs> illustrations. There is a space on his torso, however, that remains untouched. Yet if one looks there long enough, the most powerful of all the illustrations appears. The future. Weaving stories within stories, the illustrated man begins when a young drifter, Robert Drivis, meets Carl and becomes fixated by his multicolored tattoos to a degree that becomes alarming, for they reveal dark secrets of the past and three shocking depictions of the future. Two playful children use a most ingenious toy to conjure up a surprise for their unsuspecting parents. Then... Carl becomes the lone survivor of an astronaut crew shipwrecked on a planet of internal rain. Finally, as the end of the world approaches, parents plan for their own children's destruction. When the young man returns from his forays into the future, he finds that the most nightmarish vision of all is yet to be seen. It is his own destiny, about to unfold in the lethal future all too near. The Illustrated Man ingeniously heralds the multi-episode format that has once again proven irresistible in popular television programs like Amazing Stories in the Twilight Zone, with remarkable performances from Steiger and Claire Bloom and the awesome originality of Bradbury's genius. It will hold your attention as powerfully as its hero's illustrations. Never mind that Bradbury wasn't consulted on the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, since you are the biggest Bradbury fan in the room, I'm assuming, and have also even read the book and have been a fan of the movie for a long time, uh, why don't you start? What did you think? First off, you know, the book is 18 short stories, very, very loosely held together by a very short prologue and a very short epilogue, like a half page epilogue. And uh, the rest of it is just these short stories. And you're just given the idea of these skin illustrations that move and uh, squirm around on his body. And that when you look into them, you fall into it like some kind of Stendhal syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
and what you see is the future. And in general, I think most of the stories were futures, and most of them are like kind of almost dystopian ideas of futures and of human behavior in those times. Mm-hmm. They choose three stories out of mm-hmm. these eighteen stories. And I actually, I picked. So, up- I mean, let me ask you a question about that. Part of the thing about the the movie is. Uh- Rod Steiger is the illustrated man. He's got these tattoos on his body. It takes place in either like the 20s or the 30s. And he's a hobo. And he bumps into this other guy uh, on the road who's like another hobo. And then they talk. You actually think that Rod Steiger is going to beat him to death. You, yeah. you think you, you think he's just- A violent hobo. A violent hobo. You know, you think he's going to get robbed and beaten to death. Or, and An LA hobo. He takes off uh, his shirt and he reveals all the- illustrations that he has on him. And he starts kind of telling the story about how they all came to be. People want to look at them. But then Robert Drivers will like look at the lion tattoo or then look at the rocket tattoo or then look at this tattoo. And then we just kind of go into these stories. And so the movie is basically, you know, it's made up of these three stories when it keeps coming back to this framing episode that is terrific between Robert Drivers and, 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 and Rod Steiger. You've read the book. Uh, do you think they picked the right three stories? No. And in fact, well, yes. Uh, the, first of all, The Velt, which is the first story in the book and the first story in the movie, mm-hmm. which is basically a holodeck um, story. They, they choose The Velt. They choose one called The Long Rain, which mm-hmm. you mentioned. And then they choose one called The Last Night of the World. They use flavors from the other story mm-hmm. to kind of create a greater um, framing for Mm -hmm. it, which is that the illustrated man has basically been tattooed by a witch, Mm -hmm. you know, in the movie and that- uh, Oh, that's uh, not in the book? Not necessarily. It's the- The whole whole witch woman thing? The the woman is there. Her house disappeared. I think he saw her in Wisconsin, but she, you know, it's Mm -hmm. it's vanished. He hasn't been able to find her again and he is looking for her. Mm -hmm. All of that is in there. Like she went and the house went with her. That's, uh, you know, that's absolutely from the book. Uh, but they definitely make more of it. They mm-hmm. make more of his relationship with her. Well, that and, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, because that's making it a movie. Okay, so I think The Velt is absolutely the, the best story in the book. I think The Long Rain is a really, really great story. I even think uh, The Last Night of the World is a good story. But when I was going through my original uh, copy of the book, which is a bantam. By the uh, way, I, I I have that copy and it's the exact same edition. Yeah, this the exact, exact is the exact same one. This I and I love this edition. Uh, however, the pages have yellowed <laughs> enough where it's like actually super difficult to read unless I un, under bright light. But I discovered that I had dog-eared a page mm-hmm. in it, and so I was like, oh, what's that? Because I was looking through all the stories again, and I came upon Zero Hour. Mm-hmm. Which I had dog-eared because I realized, I remembered, that was a story I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Like, when I read this book, that's the one I wanted to make into a short movie. Oh, my God. You know what? I, I'm now having a memory of this years ago when we were younger. All right. You mentioning that you wanted to do one of the stories from The Illustrated Man and as this a movie is, And sometime. I figured out which one it is. It's mm-hmm. called Zero Hour. But it's too close, I think, thematically to the Velt, and I'll tell you exactly why. Mm-hmm. Zero Hour is about um, you know the, the, the kids are acting weird, mm-hmm. the kids are acting strange, and the parents are trying to figure it out. And they, you mean children all over? Well, they're kids, but oh, okay. they're, they're behaving strangely. They're doing strange things. They're like acting. They're doing things in secret, and they're trying to figure it out. And what they basically realize in this kind of slow burn, uh, you know, they very gradually discover there's an alien invasion occurring Mm -hmm. and that the kids are part of it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. They're helping the aliens because mm. they all hate their parents. Mm-hmm. And the end is like the kids basically revealing to the aliens where the parents are hiding. And it's such a great thriller. You mean like 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 Village of the Dam kind of thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the kids aren't evil. Mm-hmm. The kids have just all gotten together and decided. <laughs> <laughs> Let's support the alien invasion. Yeah. <laughs> Let's support Zero Hour. <laughs> like they're all kind of part of it. It's a great, great story. It's fantastic. But it's really, really close to the Velt. You know, it, the Velt is a story about this futuristic home. A lot of changes were made to the the book by Howard Kreitzik, mm-hmm. who is uh, he was a producer who have, became a writer. I kind of mm-hmm. I looked him up. I wasn't really aware of his work. One of the things about the Velt story is these kids they're living in this house that does everything for them. Mm-hmm. It wipes your ass. It mm-hmm. feeds you. The table uh, cut my dinner for me and fed it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, everything is done for them. And everything that they do, which are usually very nostalgic ideas because it's Bradbury's it's mm-hmm. 1920s, 1930s ideas like sitting on the porch, for example, mm-hmm. the, 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 the porch will rock the rocker for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to rock it yourself. It's everything is like that. And the whole gestalt of it is that the parents are just trying to do everything for their kids constantly, everything for their kids and trying to like uh, give them everything that they want. And it's the whole story is almost a cautionary tale about overindulging children. Because what effectively happens is they give them this nursery that can be anything. It can be Humpty Dumpty. It can be like no, it can be nursery it. rhymes type stuff. Yeah. When they get it, okay, if the kids want to turn it into Wonderland, it, from they, Alice they in Wonderland, Wonderland. They mention Alice yeah. in Wonderland. Okay. That's easy enough for them to do. If they want to turn it into Big Rock Candy Mountain, they can do that. If they want to turn it into Teddy Bear Land, they can do that. But if they want to turn it into England during the bubonic plague, they can do that as well. And and that was (laughs) never planned upon because no one ever thought that the children would be thinking about thoughts of death Mm -hmm. so intensely. And what the parents are hearing are familiar screams coming from the uh, mm-hmm. the thing at night where the kids are playing in it. And they go down there and what the kids are effectively doing is living again and again the fantasy of just killing their parents, having lions kill their parents in the African village. Yeah, it's all taking place in the Serengeti. In the and, Serengeti. Yeah, and, 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 and it just has these like wild lions out there. And then, then the, the, the basis of the start of the story in the, in the movie is – Rod Steiger and his wife looking at these lions and go, what the fuck are these kids doing? Why are they, what's with all these lions and these horrible, terrible birds, these these vultures? Why the hell are they hanging out here? And then they talk to the son about yeah. it. And he's Why like, would the kids want to be here? Yeah, what's with these fucking lions? Yeah, there like, is no psychologist. It's all disturbing, yeah. There is no psychologist in the book. The parents are going to be going away. They're turning off the house and they're turning off the veldt and that's just too much for the kids. And it ends in very much the same way. This story started me off on the bad thing about how I felt about the movie. Yeah, you had a technical problem. Well, I had a bit, and I and, and it gets worse and worse and worse. All right, as it goes on, because this, it, by technical I mean a logistical problem. Yeah, a logistical problem, which I actually tried to solve for you. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You brought up to me the idea that this is just a projection. It's crystalline walls, and the the, the all of which get painted with light, and it's so realistic, mm-hmm. and it's such a realistic depiction down to the finest details of grass on the ground that you just believe that it is that. Yeah, I was using Star Trek as a way to explain why the lions could kill the parents mm-hmm. in real life, as far as force fields and matter replication. And I, like I just and, yeah, yeah I, I, which I, is the excuse in Star Trek on how the holodeck works. Yeah, but I yeah, but the thing about it is. 
if he wants a cup of coffee, it just materializes a cup. And you were yeah. using- And that is not in the book. Yeah. That- yeah. And you were using the materializing of the cup as the same thing as the lion. I go, well, no, it's not. I mean, I can, I can maybe understand an inanimate object like a cup being developed, but something that moves and lives and can kill, that's not a- coffee cup. I mean, like, for instance, when the kids take them to the jousting of the uh, the medieval times, the medieval times. All right. So I'm like, you know, after you see the end of the movie, it's like, so any of those knights could just walk over with a broadsword and cut uh, uh, Rod Steiger's head off at any time. And and the only reason it doesn't happen is because no one ever thought about it. (laughs) That doesn't make any fucking sense. I understand a hologram situation that's so compelling and a reality so compelling that lions attack you and you feel as if you have been torn apart by lions. And maybe you die of a heart attack because, or or the excruciatingness of the pain, but there actually aren't lion claws and teeth ripping your skin apart. In Star Trek, they have gone through great lengths to explain okay, force fields. Star Trek takes place 500 years in the fucking future. We're talking about this. This also <laughs> takes place 500 years in the future. No, it's not for sure. <laughs> That's not for sure. <laughs> or No, uh, it's Star Trek's get out of jail free card for everything. They, well, a thousand years in the future, maybe it can happen. <laughs> we're, not well, pl- we're not playing the Star Trek It's game. a sophisticated tractor or, beam yeah. uh, matter replication. T- I think that's I mean, like, what- but, but okay, but also, it doesn't even make sense. Exactly, what, exactly what you said about the idea that, um, one, why would you invent something that could create killers? I mean, look, I mean, well, literally in a situation- like television like, yeah. or, no, no, well, or it's cell phones? Not, no, it's not the same thing. <laughs> I could go into the hologram and create an entire new Nazi Germany and now they're there, uh, all right? I think there's an episode of Star Trek where they do that. And now they, exa- okay, enough with the Voyager, fucking Star Trek. Voyager, Voyager, Voyager. Enough with the Star Trek references. <laughs> This is the source wait, wait. for the holiday. No one would be. ever make this and sell this commercially. Or there would be something, somebody would have thought about that. But also even the idea, even as a, a learning tool, or like if, if, if the idea is you're teaching kids history and they want to see what it was like at the Battle of Little Bighorn, well, then they just conjure up the Battle of Little Bighorn yeah. and they can actually watch it. Yeah, that's the idea. But that suggests that it's not like Sitting Bull is dealing with the kids. You know, the whole concept of like, well, nobody ever assumed that this would ever happen just does not work. Well, right. the book I mean, especially, that- if, especially if it's supposed to be a commercial thing that you sell and that people buy. It's a very new device. They, they do establish that. Work. But the real, uh, yeah. the real point of the story is about the dangers of leaving work to someone else. Mm-hmm. The dangers of letting your kids be raised by someone else. The dangers of just putting an iPad in your child's hand and thinking that it's all going to be fine and that they're not going to stumble across Pornhub or, or internet beheadings or like ghastly things that people shouldn't see. That, of course, they uh, automatically seek out and do. There is a moment in the movie that is also not in the story. There's two moments. There's the one where he's talking to his kids mm-hmm. about what it was like when he used when he was young. Mm-hmm. I didn't ever get used to uh, attach my pod to the energy flow and just fly away 1,500 miles. I was only allowed to go 100 miles. Mm-hmm. And he's talking like that. That that actually doesn't exist in the book. His mm-hmm. attempt. Nor does the moment when and I'm trying to remember the name of the husband and wife. I guess it doesn't matter. George, I think it's his, mm-hmm. something like that. The, the husband and wife. And she says, make love to me. And he answers, why? Mm-hmm. And they've got this 
dysfunctional relationship because they're used to the machines doing everything. Mm -hmm. The implication that's being made in the movie, which isn't in the book, she's got machines to do that for her. Mm -hmm. Why do you want me to do it? And this is like, they've fallen into a kind of apathy Mm -hmm. about everything. Mm -hmm. Really, the story is a cautionary tale against that. The movie attempts to make it more. You know, I noticed. The, I noticed. And then boil it down into a Twilight Zone kind of thing that has a gotcha ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They attempted. They attempt to do that. And sometimes Bradbury is not often the gotcha ending guy. Mm-hmm. He occasionally does a gotcha ending. In fact, Zero Hour, the story that I mentioned, does have a gotcha ending. It's kind of like mm-hmm. a a final scare moment at, at the end. But in the Last Night of the World, uh, which is the final story in this one. The ethical conundrum is everyone in the world has had the same dream. We're all going to die. It's the last night of the world. Mm -hmm. And what are we going to do? And there's this kind of intellectual conversation. And then, you know, as in the movie, uh, the next morning comes and the world hasn't ended, but they've all conspired to kill their kids. Mm -hmm. The thing is in the book, there is no morning. Mm -hmm. There is no waking up. There are no dead children. In the at the end of it, there is the decision of what we're going to do, and then the understanding that this is the last night of the world, and then she comes to bed and she says, "Oh, I left the sink running. Oh well," and they go to bed, mm-hmm. and that's the end. Like that's a very Bradbury style ending. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it's like the the world is ending, and well, the sink is running. But if the world's ending, it doesn't Who matter. Who cares? Yeah, and. This is a very. No, that I, sounds like a. That sounds like a need. I could. I can even see it on the page. Actually. Yeah, it's a. It's a very compelling story. I see why they had to do the twist, but I can also oh, see like, why I I, Bradbury I, would be upset a little bit at the movie because look, I, these I, are the kind of thematic changes that they're making. I look. Any of my comments about the stories is not making a reference to Ray Bradbury's original short story. Of it's, course, it's only to the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. and you've not even. I don't think you've read. No, I haven't. I yeah. haven't. Like, I don't like the story, the the last night on Earth at all. The only thing that I kind of got a kick out of it, and it was ruined by the deadly way in which they did it. But at the very beginning, especially with that crazy set that they're on, at the very beginning when Rod Steiger goes to talk to Claire Bloom and talk about the end of the world, for all intensive purposes, it looked like the opening of a Superman movie. It looked like he was Jor-El, oh, yeah. all right, coming in and talking to Susanna York and talking about how it's the end of uh, Planet yeah. Krypton. And he even looks like what you would imagine. Uh, he's even dressed a little bit like yeah, a kind he's, of yeah, Jor-El. Yeah, he's not dressed like well, like Marlon Brando, but you can imagine a, that's a version of Jor-El if, yeah. if, if Rod Steiger was playing Jor-El in Superman the movie. <laughs> yeah. My biggest problem with the third story is they fucking neuter him. It's so pretentious yeah. and it's so pious. It actually hurts his performance as if that wig doesn't do it enough. All right. Just the piousness and the prissiness of the performance and of just the whole concept of that story is just a drag. Bradbury is a very classy writer Mm -hmm. and he writes about ideas and very classy ideas. And I can imagine trying to chase that, Mm -hmm. but it ends up becoming that third story, which is pretentious. It ends up coming across really pretentious. Well, let me ask you a question. I I think I'm going to know the answer to this. I've got no problem whatsoever about the idea that uh, when they do the different stories, the three characters that we've met are playing, are playing the, are, characters. Are playing the yeah. characters. I don't know if they pull that off as well as I've seen before, but like a movie that does that, that I really like, it's like the number one thing I like about it is that independent horror film from the 70s, Screams of a Winter Night. Yeah, sure. 
you know, where all those kids get together to tell ghost stories. And then when you see the ghost stories, it's the kids. Yeah. That's the movie that actually pulled that off as well as I've ever seen anybody. It's it's the one thing about the movie that I like, but that actually really works. But I guess my question though, is in the book, are they all just completely separate characters or is there a, is there a link to Carl? Is there a link to Carl? Not only is there not a link to Carl, there is very rarely a link back to the illustrated man and the framework of the story. Sometimes they'll put a little, you know, in italics at the very end and then he looked into the next mm-hmm. tattoo, mm-hmm. dot, dot, dot. And then you're on to the next story. The few similarities that, that are there are not as threatening, not as thrilling, not as exciting. A lot of it is Rod Steiger bringing Rod Steiger to the show. Look, I'm not a fan of the stories in the movie. I love, I can't love more the first 20 minutes. Yeah. Just Rod Steiger. All right. As the illustrated man. His performance is simply holding the entire movie together. It's incredible. And what's really surprising is Robert Drivis is very good in the first half. I've seen him in a few other things. He's in a um, almost like a pre-Goodfellows uh, a Vegas movie from 1970 called uh, Where It's At. Oh, yeah. With uh, uh, David Jansen and Brenda Vaccaro. And uh, so he did a few things around this time. And I didn't think he was that good in that. But I thought he was extremely strong in the in the opening 20 minutes. He's holding his own with Rod Steiger in, he, in the in the, no, I mean, I can, the weaker of the two characters. Well, he's but, definitely the weaker of the two characters, but actually that's the harder role, all yeah, right? That's think, what I mean. It's yeah, way harder. Yeah, playing the you know, the young boy ingenue, all right, you know, against this raving Rod Steiger. The movie turns against him because once he becomes obsessed with the woman the performance isn't as good. It's not really his fault. It's just they make the character nutty. And yeah. and it's just, yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not buying it. But the opening 20 minutes of Steiger's character and his fantastic dialogue, in the last few years, I've tried to watch The Illustrated Man again. And I could never get past that 20 minutes. Because once, every time it got to the, the lion story, I was like, ah. I'm just not that interested. And so one of the reasons I chose the film, because I, and I knew you, you had an affection for it, mm-hmm. is I wanted to have an excuse. To forcibly sit through the To forcibly sit through. You got it. And I realized that I was exactly right all those time. I'm glad that I actually saw the film all the way to the end, but I was, I, I, I was right. <laughs> uh, um, and you know what? I don't give a damn about all that other shit, but that 20 minutes is so good. Rod Steiger was a leading man at that time in this, I'm a great, intense actor. And so everything was about, you know, him being this, uh, you wouldn't saw a movie starring Rod Steiger. The point was to see an intense performance. Yeah. Whether it's uh, his homosexual military drill sergeant in uh, The Sergeant, yeah. you know, or it's his serial killer in No Way to Trade a Lady, also directed by Jack Smite. Um, so he was doing a lot of kind of roles like this. I think this is his most successful. This is his leading man role. The first five minutes of that scene, Rod Steiger is the scariest hobo I've ever seen in a movie. I don't like bugs, frogs, and spiders, and creepy crawly things that zing out and bite you when you're not looking. If you came across that guy hoboing, I would be fucking terrified. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. And he's a hulking man. Yeah, yeah. And and, uh, Robert Dreyfus looks like, who always has that kind of, sweaty, handsome look. Yeah, I don't know how yeah, else to yeah. describe uh-huh. it. Like shiny, shiny guy. I'll do Rod Steiger and uh, uh, you, you be Robert Dreyfus and just say, hey, uh, those are some pretty neat tattoos. 
Uh, hey, uh, those are some nice tattoos you got there. These are not tattoos! They're skin illustrations! <laughs> don't you ever call them tattoos again with me! And don't make me tell you again. <laughs> Get in your bag, Peek. <laughs> can, can I also just call out to the dog? Oh, the dog, yeah, yeah. So that's another thing about those scenes is they are made semi-insane yeah. by the by the introduction his, of that his dog. His name is Peak, as in Pekingese. Yeah. But it's actually, it's a pomegranate. He's a bum. <laughs> like me. Like me with two bums. <laughs> it is so much hey, fun go, watching Rod You keep Rod him in a back. He likes it in a back. He likes it hot. He likes it hot. I like it hot. He likes it hot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's totally uh, that's totally Rod Steiger, and he's and he's great in it. The, the, but for the, the rest of my life, anytime somebody says the word tattoo, yeah, no, you're gonna say they are skin. I mean, they are not tattoos. They are skin illustrations. The thing is, you know, by the end of the movie, by the end of the movie, and like I'm just gonna do a little spoiler here. Uh, by the end of the movie. Like he's fallen in love with her or something. They're trying to create something that just is false. Yeah. And, and it fails false. And it feels false and it doesn't exist and it's not in the book. And you don't need it in the book. And you're wondering the why book, the kid's hanging around. I mean, it seems the like book, they've been there all day. In the book, <laughs> it's like reading a comic book or a, or a novel that you love. You look into one and it tells you a story and then you just, you can't stop. And they're, and they're, they're beckoning you and you just go from one to the other. And he just travels from one to the other through this long night until there's only one space left, which is the, yeah, the, the empty, empty space, spot. the empty spot in which you don't just see the future as the box says, you see your own future. And some people don't like what they see when they look in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden they don't like me. Yeah, they don't like me. <laughs> and now they don't want me around. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. He's <laughs> totally that like. He's- just talking about Rod Steiger again is making this movie get better and better and better. And it's just rising and rising and rising. And like I said, even if it's only those first 20 minutes, those first 20 minutes are fucking fantastic. I could watch that every week. I could watch the first 20 minutes of this movie every fucking week. The thing that we haven't talked about is the second story. Yeah, the Long Rain. The Long Rain, which is about a, a spaceship that crashes on this planet where it's perpetual rain. So bad that it, this crew is lost yeah, and they're trying, they're trying to find a, a, a sun dome, but they just having to exist in this rain with this maniacal leader leading them on. But actually he's maniacal, but he's probably the only one who he is. You know, he's the sergeant who knows how to uh, it keep rains them alive. so hard. They've been out for days and days and days and it is just pouring rain. There's nowhere to hide they from the rain. They can't wear their helmets because that'll make them go deaf it because goes, of the sound of yeah. it. But even if they hide in the trees, it's like the sound is just too deafening. In the book, they describe like if you try to lay down and sleep, it's like the, the moss and the, yeah, 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 and yeah. the algae or whatever it is on the ground kind of grabs you mm-hmm. and holds you. It's like a thousand hands holding you. And so they just like, they freak out and, and you can't feel your hands and face because they've been pelted by rain mm-hmm. for so many days. I mean, look, here's the thing about that. If I ever read The Illustrated Man, that'll be the story I read. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you that story is terrific. It's only 12 pages long. You can do it. No, but here's the thing, though. It's a very wild, out there idea, a challenging idea, shot very conventionally. <laughs> yeah. Now, in a strange way... That rain story, that can't be worked out good in a film. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's too boring. It's too oppressive. It's just, it's not cinematic. 
it's a great idea. A, a, a comic book could be done out of it. That would be fantastic. Uh, even a, a radio play could be done out of it. That's fantastic. But one of the things, though, look, I got to say, I, I'd forgotten about this image, but this image has been in my head forever, but it was trapped. And then I saw the movie, it brought it up again. When they shoot the body to get rid of it and all that mud just, yeah. just kind of comes out of nowhere and just swallows it up. That was one of the wildest images I think I had ever seen at, at, at that point of time. And I had forgotten it until we watched it, it the other day. It was pretty wild looking at it the other night. As yeah, well. it was. That was the way, what I read into it when I looked at that is he's shot him, he's killed him. And when the minute he falls to the ground, all the algae and stuff is like, it's kind of how I read into mm. it. That it's the planet itself like going crazy. Well, like it looks like consuming yeah, him. It looks like it's con- it's a, a combination of like the, you you shoot the body and it kind of dissolves in a foam that is now mixed with the algae yeah, like and the muddy mud foam. And yeah. and it just it was weird. Yeah, you know the book takes place on Venus. They needed to do it one more time though. They yeah. really needed to do it one more time so you would have a sense of what that fucking was. Well, when Robert Dreyfus, uh, you know is going to kill himself. Well, I kept waiting for it. I wanted to see him do it yeah. to see if that would happen yeah. again. Yeah. The long reign didn't have a gotcha ending. Unless it's supposed to be cynical, he's fine. It's a happy ending. It's a happy ending. It's a happy ending in the book as well, but there's a there's an interesting change. Happy is too strong a word, but, but uh, <laughs> well, yeah, there there it's a it's a it's an ending. Yeah. Um there is a thematic choice that was made again, by the, um, by the writer, the screenwriter. Uh, he turns the entire um, push. Mm-hmm. You know, we are on the Rangoon Death March or whatever it is. We are going to find the Sun Dome. Mm-hmm. And you've got one guy insisting that we, you know, that we keep marching. Mm-hmm. And when you find a broken Sun Dome, we're going to go to the next one. Mm-hmm. And everyone else is giving up. But this is the guy that's pushing them forward. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Rod Steiger. Yeah. He is... Yelling you forward. He is forcing you to move. Everyone else is giving up. And there comes a moment when Robert Dreyfus and him are talking. And suddenly he says, don't you want to go to the sun gnome? You're going to get into that sun. You're going to look at that beautiful sun. You're going to get a, a cup of hot cocoa. You're going to get a sun dome whore. And you're going to get some sun dome whores. <laughs> We're going to get us some sun dome whores. And he's like, Robert Dreyfus's character says, you think that I'm the kind of man that wants that. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you realize he's basically saying, like, I'm gay. I don't need to go to a whorehouse. Mm-hmm. Bradbury doesn't do that at all. You don't get to the sun dome. There is no woman there mm-hmm. to, to put a, a bathrobe on you and to take your wet clothes I off. actually thought Steiger's speech about the sun dome was the best the dialogue got after the first 20 minutes. Oh, for sure. It's yeah. great dialogue. His whole thing about, like, are we going to go to that sun dome? In the book, they're actually on Venus. Uh-huh. And they've been on Venus and Venus sucks. They're at war. Mm-hmm. The sun domes are military bases mm-hmm. protected by guns to protect them from the Venusians who come up out of the sea every now and then to drag people away. Well, and they go to that broken sun dome. They're mm-hmm. like, hey, uh, what happened to all the, the, the people? Where are the bodies? They're like, oh, those Venusians. They mm-hmm. dragged them back underwater, back into the okay. sea. Well, you're making it sound like that actually sounds less interesting than the movie because the movie... You don't know what planet it is, but it's just a planet where it rains all the time. All Correct. right. If it's called the long rain, then that means Venus. Then maybe Venus doesn't rain all the time. It's just a long rain going on. I like the idea that it's a planet where it just rains constantly. Well, I think he sets up Venus rains constantly. This oh, okay. is Venus. Okay. And uh, But these are military bases. And when he goes into it, when he finally gets there alone and he, he enters into it and there's the hot cocoa and there's the, the place to put your wet clothes and everything mm-hmm. – it's a bunch of guys, a bunch of dudes there. It's the military, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's gotten back to the base. No, no. I mean, look, this is basically 
it's World War II. You're in the North African desert. Sure. You're in a tank. The tank breaks down. And now you and your four compatriots are just stuck in the middle of the fucking Gobi Desert. Yeah. And uh, and you've lost your compass. You've got to find the equivalent of whatever a snow hut is. Yeah, you go, yeah, yeah, oasis. Yeah, an you've oasis. got to find the oasis. You, gotta, you have to yeah. find an oasis or a military fort. You lost your bearings and you've got an officer who is going to get you through this a lot. Yeah, this could have been a foreign legion story. Absolutely could be, yeah. And he even says, you know, when they get to the broken one, he's like, well, you know, uh, once Congress gets around to it, approving it, they'll come and repair this, but it's going to be too late for us. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I think that's Bradbury's one little commentary in the middle of all of it. Well, let me talk about uh, uh, how when I saw this, okay, so, uh, so I thought this trailer was just fucking amazing. I even knew who Rod Steiger was when I was seven because I'd seen In the Heat of the Night. We go see the film and I'm watching it and that first 20 minutes is going on and I'm liking it. And then it starts with the lion story. And now it's like in the future and it's still Rod Steiger. I'm not. I'm, see, even back then, Quentin I'm wants not, hillbillies not, and hobos and in the 30s. I'm not quite. He doesn't want to be I'm in the future. Not, I'm not quite sophisticated enough at seven to think that Rod Steiger is just playing another character in the story. All right. It looks like, well, it was. Is this a flashback? I mean, I knew what flashbacks were. Is this a flashback? Uh, but why is this flashback taking place on a spaceship? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And what are the lions doing on a space? I mean, I'm seven, all right? And I'm, I'm trying to put it together. And then I fell asleep. And then I wake up and the lions are eating. <laughs> and then it's Rod Steiger as the illustrated man and Robert Driver's skin. And then I fall asleep again. And every time I wake up, I'm in the middle of something else. Some I have other no, movie. I have no idea where I am. So I wake up again, and I'm in the middle of some fucking rain with these soldiers. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then I fall asleep again. <laughs> and then I wake up. And every time I woke up, I had no idea where I was. I went back to sleep until I finally woke up uh, for the closing bit. So I've remembered the closing bit my entire life. Okay, so let me read Michael Weldon's. Review. Yeah, I've got a quote from Vincent Canby here as well. Okay. Uh, you want to start with your Vincent Sure, mine is very short because I just thought it was funny uh, because, as you know, the film was something of a critical disappointment. But Vincent Canby wrote for the New York Times, everything remains fetus-like and underdeveloped, although shrouded in misty pretensions of grandeur. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of that is true, but I actually kind of don't mind it. I still sort of... <laughs> I mean, Rod Steiger is so good. And I, he's, I, I love science fiction so much. He's, that, he's so good at it. Okay, yeah. so Michael Weldon of the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film writes, Most reviewers blasted this adaptation of three famous Ray Bradbury stories. Rod Steiger and Claire Bloom star in all three stories. In the connecting segments, set in 1933, Steiger is the tattooed man and Claire Bloom is the mysterious tattoo artist from the future. The Long Rain episode is great. It even features Jason Evers from The Brain That Wouldn't Die. <laughs> the Velt and Last Night of the World are the other stories. <laughs> Just laying it out. And, you know, the, the ultimately, the real problem is that uh, the screenwriter is attempting to tie it all together and have these stories connect to somehow, turn it but, into a movie. But the fact of the matter is these stories are not connected with each other. They are, they are, they are just... Disconnected short stories. Well, it's a, it's a the, the, Ray Bradbury is known for taking a bunch of random short stories he yeah, did, doing a collage, and Jerry rigging yeah. them into a novel, yeah, Martian Chronicles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially. but but even but in the I mean that's why it was really bizarre because in the Martian Chronicles 
they're not that random, though. They all have Martians in them. They all paint a mosaic. He wrote a lot about Venus and Mars. Let's just put it yeah. that way. Yeah. <laughs> but the Martian Chronicles, I think, creates a mosaic with Martians in it to some degree. Where well, it, I, it, it tells the story of human history traveling yeah. to and from Mars. So I expected it to be more thematic connection between the stories and the wraparound story. And then that was one of the things when we were watching it. At a certain point, I was like, well, this is just fucking Night Gallery. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, no, it's... Exactly, Night Gallery. Not that there's anything wrong with Night Gallery. I love Night Gallery. I know, but I just didn't expect something so bloody random. Yeah, with with a kind of Stendhal syndrome, uh, you know, as part of it. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back and we're joined by the lovely Gala, who's here to give us her perspective on uh, the different movies, in this case, Illustrated Man. But also, she also serves a function because Gala, like the rest of you out there, does not have access to the Video Archives collection the way myself and Roger do. So it's her job to track down the movies as best she can on her own. Like you have to. If she's successful in this endeavor, then she can point you a roadmap to how you can watch the different films. I have a secret ambition, which is to thwart her in this and come <laughs> up with stuff that's so obscure that she cannot find it at all. That's 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 my endeavor in this process. And now I turn it over to Gala Avery. Hello, Gala. Hey, Quentin. You may succeed in your quest one day, but... Definitely not on Illustrated Man, because you can find this pretty much everywhere, you guys. I agree with you guys. I think that the book ending or the the first 20 minutes is the best. Mm -hmm. It has the snappiest dialogue. Rod Steiger is really funny in it. Mm -hmm. Like the peak, his dog and his the fact that it's in a bag and he's like, oh, he likes it hot, just like I like it hot. And that moment I was like, okay, I'm, I'm liking this. But then it gets into the belt. And okay. I've never read the book because in 2007 or 2008, my dad bought me a copy and then someone at my school stole it from my backpack. So to whoever out there stole my Illustrated Man book, I'm glad you have it, but I don't now. So I've never read the story, but everyone- And I, and I won't loan you mine. And he won't loan me his, so I'm out of luck. <laughs> you'll, you'll damage the spine. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you'll crack it. <laughs> everyone I know has read The Velt and everyone I know has actually seen this segment of the illustrated man in class mm-hmm. they actually just played the velt segment for me yeah it's it's like fun it's like whatever i mean i had some of the same problems quentin did with but like, you're a star trek fan but i'm a star trek fan so you so understand brain, the mechanics of the holodeck in my brain, whereas the quentin safeties are off the safeties are off but see this sa- is, safeties are off this is the thing quentin is that the velt creates things based on your emotions so you generate your own reality Now, in this world, no one has negative emotions. They have no emotions at all. So something negative like this should never be generated by the children. 
because no one has any of these emotions. That's true. And that's actually, that is a point that's made in the book. And that's, a little bit. that's the thing is that everyone's numb to everything. Everyone's doing nothing. So that's maybe the only thing that I would think would explain the fact of why they've magically created these lions and have been just like playing this thing over in their head is that kids, children aren't supposed to have negative emotions, but oh, they do. Okay. Maybe the kids aren't supposed to have negative emotions and they conjure up the lions. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. But you're still talking about lion claws, real lion claws, and real lion teeth ripping. This real is never going to work. This, this, this argument this will never work with Quentin. No, and also the thing is, though, is that Ray Bradbury just loves lions. If you look through <laughs> a lot of his stories, that's true. If you look through a lot of that his stories, true. there are yeah. lions everywhere. I don't know what it is about Ray Bradbury loving lions and hating children, but it's there. It's just that that's what exists. And by the way, I just, I will. I, Ray Bradbury doesn't hate children. I'm just going to say that as a Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I retract my statement. Ray Bradbury does he, He's not compassionate hate towards the internal fear of children <laughs> in an adult world. Actually, how malevolent he presents them. I actually like that aspect of it. I, I, li- I, I like kids. When that, little kid, that little kid I don't is like fantastic. It, I don't buy when they, they, they set kids up evil, but I like it when they set them up malevolent. Yeah, <laughs> that little malevolent boy was fantastic. Yeah, he was not bad. Uh <laughs> Uh, uh, one of the design things in the movie, uh, well, the design thing in the movie I liked is I loved Rod Steiger's tattoo makeup. I mean, it's, it was fantastic. And and actually props to Rod Steiger for being a hefty guy and going naked or at least, you know, naked enough to be walking around like he was you know, pretty Rod- naked in that one scene where he's on the bed with her, like where he's like oh, yeah. literally laying naked. No, he well, yeah, and it's his wife, so he feels comfortable yeah. doing it. Yeah, and- but I mean, you, I mean, well, I mean, the designs are fantastic. I mean, you know, the you know the the tattoo I'll remember forever is the lion tattoo. Yeah. All right, because I mean, I mean, to such a degree, I'm almost surprised. It, it actually kind of looks it looks better, but it actually almost kind of looks like that '70s version of the lion that yeah. MGM used, like you know the lion that's in the logo for MGM on 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 uh, uh, yeah, 2001. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know that kind of you know '70s lion as opposed to Leo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it has a Warner Seven Arts version yeah. of the the MGM lion, it's like the one that lives on in Vegas now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you know, there's. It's funny. You just reminded me because uh, you were talking about the first tattoo or one of the first tattoos. I think it's a, the lion is like the this, lion is the first. Well, this first one, one the second one. The rose is the first one. And what's oh, yeah, the rose is the first one. And she, what's she interesting him, is yeah. there's a moment in the book that is completely lost that Jack Smite really dropped the ball on, mm-hmm. frankly, where it's the first tattoo that he sees because he's wearing clothes. Mm-hmm. He opens his hand and shows him the rose, mm-hmm. and for a moment he thinks it's a real rose, and he reaches to pick it up. But then he doesn't because it's a tattoo. Oh, wow. And this could have been achieved. He could have actually held out a rose. And then when he reached for it, it could have been a tattoo. We could have done yeah, that. Yeah, that would have been a nice bit. And that would have been a way to show these things are real. They feel real. And that's in the book. Like that is the first page mm-hmm. of the book. Oh, uh, that's there. I agree. That that would have been a nice and, bit. And it's a directorial cue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, second story for me, boring. I have nothing to say about it, to be honest. Third story is okay. But I'm really confused as to why all the men in the world are getting together and agreeing upon the world is going to end. We all have the same. And in my, I actually didn't think they had a dream. I thought they had a vision. Like, oh, we're, we all believe. Uh, like, we have a dream that the world is going to oh, end. So you thought it was like the real world. I thought it was like, <laughs> yeah, I thought, no, because they talk about like, oh, like back when that other thing happened. And he's like, yes, back when the gas clouds came and it was so heavy that only the people on the top, on the of, the, top, on on the the top, top of the top survived. Mountains. So I thought they were like literally just like, 
felt like, okay, it's time for the world to end. We're all going to agree to have the world end. It, it, it comes across like that. I'll tell you in the book, because that actually concerned me. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Is that what Bradbury's saying? Is that all the men have gotten together and made this decision? But in the book, he tells the wife, yeah, we've all gotten, you know, this happened. And we were all the men thought this. And she's like, well, all of the women did too. We've all had the dream. Yeah, they could. And so they make a point that in the book, everybody has had this dream. So there's like a consensus among everyone, but Mm -hmm. there isn't this kind of twist at Mm -hmm. the end of the- Yeah. Yeah, and I actually, I kind of like the twist that like the world really isn't ending and you've just sacrificed the most important thing. So basically her world has ended because her children are dead, but the world itself hasn't ended. Yeah. I I did like that in the movie. Yeah. Anyway, my VHS copy cost me $12.98. It is a Warner Brothers copy. It is not a beautiful clamshell like you have over there. It's just a- like cardboard thing. Although I have to say that's a kind of an odd uh, Warner Brothers. Is that one that's been cut up and put into a box or is that one that was made specifically for a library? No, no, no. <laughs> like, no, no, it, no, it was, this is, this is one of the, uh, or did they move to a different style at a No, show? this isn't one of the Eddie Brands tapes. So, they made everything smaller by, by the time by the time they got seven thousand video cassettes. They yeah, started yeah, making yeah. everything as small as they possibly yeah. could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one actually held up pretty good. Yeah, because <laughs> it looks like it was intended to be in that case. Mm-hmm. So. Now he, you can see what they did is they they oh they, they made, sliced they it right here. Yeah. But 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 this fits better than they normally do when they yeah. do, the, do and it. And they this did way. a good job. Yeah, they did a good job. And in the video archives book, we have that video archives bought a tape for sixty nine ninety nine. Yeah, sixty nine ninety nine. It was a little bit more expensive. expensive than yours. Yeah. A lot more expensive than mine. (laughs) And we're back and we're on to the second film of our Rod Steiger double feature. And that is the French film Claude Chabrol's Dirty Hands. 1975. Starring Rod Steiger and Romy Schneider. The video is uh, one of the great wizard videos, which is one of the... Subsidiary companies of media. This one uh, also run by Charles Band. And I'm a big, big wizard video fan. I'm very excited that we're having our first wizard video. Charlie Band, who I used to work for. Yes, yes. The, the director, the director of uh, Transfers, yeah. <laughs> amongst other things. That's right. I was his projectionist. But that's one of the interesting things about Dirty Hands is uh, a lot of Chabrol's movies at this time were released in French and uh, you know, played the Lemley Art House circuits. But this one didn't get picked up in 75, but then later it got picked up by New Line, New Line Cinema, back when they were an exploitation company, where, you know, where their most famous titles were uh, The Street Fighter and um, Pink Flamingos. Yeah. And so they picked up Dirty Hands and, you know, more or less released it as an as an exploitation film. Yeah. Let's get rid of that French title and uh, yeah. just well, call I'm, it Dirty I, Hands. I bet you, I'm sure the French title is probably just the- uh, uh, Les Innocents au Mensal which is uh, the innocence of the dirty hands. The thing that's interesting about New Line picking it up, that bodes well for the movie to some degree because it makes it sound like it's not going to be a boring art film thriller because an exploitation company picked it up. If they picked it up, then they felt that there was something about it that they could play in grindhouses and they could play in drive-ins and it would actually entertain the audience. The storyline is as classic as if ripped from the pages of James N. Kane. I'll read the back of the Vestron video box. Rod Steiger and Romy Schneider star in a story of love, lust, murder, and double revenge with a bizarre twist. 
A beautiful, sensuous woman, Romy Schneider, is torn between her older husband, Rod Steiger, and a younger lover. Somebody's going to end up with dirty hands. Her lover, an ambitious writer, convinces Romy to murder her husband in his sleep. Deadly weapons, missing bodies, and murder victims who return very much alive complicate this cunning, complex, and convoluted plot. When you lie to the police, keep your story straight. If it doesn't gel, it isn't aspect. Blackmail. <laughs> Extortion. Extracted confessions. Forced love. Deception and deceit are woven into a tapestry of terror. Pulsating paranoia traps you in a web of intrigue from which there is no escape. Who will survive? The spider or the fly? Running time... 102 minutes. It doesn't gel. It's not aspic. <laughs> something. That's what made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, wait, that's somebody was like having fun. Yeah, someone. <laughs> and it's got a fantastic tagline. How Romy Schneider solved Rod Steiger's sexual problem. Permanently. <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk a little bit about Claude Chabreau, about who he is. He's known more or less as the... French Hitchcock. He was part of the uh, um, College of Cinema crowd. He's done all kinds of movies, but he became famous for doing a whole series of thrillers, usually starring his wife, Stephanie Andre. La Femme Infidel is one of his most famous ones. And then there's a This Man Must Die. And there's, there, there's a few of them. One of the jokes about Claude Chabrol's movies, and this fits right into it, is in a Claude Chabrol world, uh, there's no such thing as divorce. <laughs> When you're tired of your husband or you're tired of your wife, <laughs> you just plot the perfect murder. <laughs> no one believes in divorce in a, in a Chabrol film. Now, the thing about it is I don't love his thrillers. I've liked some of his other movies. I mean, the the uh, story of a woman with Isabel Huppert playing the uh, black market abortionist uh, during uh, Vichy, France is fantastic. It's terrific. I don't care for his thrillers. Now, his thrillers are drastically better than the abysmal Truffaut Hitchcock movies, which I think are just awful. Like, I'm not a Truffaut fan that much anyway. I mean, like, there are some exceptions. Uh, the, the main exception being um, the story of Adele H. But for the most part, I feel about Truffaut like I feel about Ed Wood. I think he's a very passionate, bumbling amateur. Chabrol is not a bumbling amateur, but I'm sure if I were to ask Brian De Palma what he think of a Claude Chabrol movie, he would go, oh, yeah, the guy who makes those thrillless thrillers. <laughs> Using that as an example, though, uh, Dirty Hands is the best of all the uh, uh, Chabrol uh, thrillers I've ever seen. I really, really enjoyed it. I really got a kick out of it. Like I said, as if Ripped from the pages of James N. Kane, the whole story is, you know, it's the uh, Postman Always Rings Twice story. Yeah. Younger woman is married to an older guy. The guy's impotent and and he's become a, a, a self-lacerating drunk. And then she meets a young hot stud lover who's a, a, a writer. And then they start having this affair. He's this, the, the, the husband's a cuckold. But he's so boozy, I don't know if he even knows or cares or what, what's going on. Until finally, they just decide 
as these couples usually do, that life would be a whole lot better without this dude. And so they start planning his murder. And then that is pretty much the first half of the story. Now, I'm going to draw a line on here. This is one I don't think we should talk anything about the second half of yeah, the movie. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. This is It's uh, like the setup is really good. That's what the setup is what I knew and everything else it wants to do with its story all happens in the second half. Yeah. Um I am not a fan of directors using obvious Freudian imagery uh <laughs> to get across psychological points. And this movie has a whopper of one right at the beginning because the whole point of the movie is that Rod Steiger is impotent and he's got this hot pants, beautiful wife that that he can't satisfy. Robbie Schneider's his wife. Yeah, yeah. That he can't that he can't satisfy. She meets her young lover when she's like laying on her uh, uh, front lawn, nude sunbathing. The lover is is flying a kite, and then the kite kind of just falls out of the air and lands on her naked body. And he goes to collect his kite. Yeah. And it's a kite of a predator bird. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah. But now that's a neat shot. The idea of uh, the kite landing on her pretty derriere. Yeah. All right. Uh, as she's her sun- naked body. As yeah. she's saying, well, but he, it especially lands on her ass. Yeah. You know? The young lover flies a kite, you know, because you, you can get it up. Get it, get it, ah, get it, get it, get yeah, it. You can get, get it. it up. You can get it up. Get, get it, get it, get it. Every day, <laughs> as long as there's a little wind. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's no wind, he just has to run a little. Yeah, and Rod Steiger's not flying kites. No, no. <laughs> but Rod Steiger is almost as great in this movie as he was in The Illustrated Man. He's percolating in he, this film. Wait, just the moment when he enters the room. And his wife and the young stud are sitting there talking. I'm going to have a drink. My wife doesn't like me to drink, do you? (laughs) It's such a Rod Steiger moment. It's just such a Rod Steiger moment. Now, I think I would have liked that moment normally any old time. But the fact that it's happening after we saw uh, uh, Illustrated Man just made it all the better. Now, the first three quarters of the movie was terrific, just terrific. The strip was fantastic. I loved everything about it. In the last third, too many characters that have supposedly died keep showing up alive. And that always really bugs me at a certain point. That actually happens another time in the movie, but I went with it. But when you, but then they double dipped. Yeah. And they did it too much. And then it even has a situation at the end, that there's one of those things that I really can't stand where, like, it seems like all the characters we've met all at one point in time start showing up in the room with guns and pointing them at everybody. However, having said that, I was invested in Rod Steiger and Robin Schneider's relationship. And it's an interesting thing because we know he's sincere, but we don't know if she's sincere. And we won't know if she's sincere until pretty much the last scene of the movie. Now, that I love. Yeah. I love when you don't know where a character is coming from and you wait the whole thing and then eventually it's revealed. And even though like, I don't like the plot machinations in the last 20 minutes, her fight with the villain in the climax is terrific. It's a very violent scene and it's, it's riveting. And it's riveting. And also it's in that scene that she reveals her true motives. My favorite moment in this movie and my favorite performance in this movie, which um, kind of jumped out of nowhere almost. Mm. It, it, and I haven't because, even brought him up. I haven't the, even brought him up yet. You're right. Yeah, because the movie is so um, slick and well-paced mm. 
and kind of gripping in its early part. And then suddenly Jean Rochefort shows yeah, yeah. up playing uh, Albert Legal, mm-hmm. which yeah. is Albert Legal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> his name, who is an attorney. Yeah, it's like, you know, like in Postman and Always Rings twice, the husband's murdered and she's like in trouble. All right. She's got to survive the investigation. She gets this attorney who gives and there's, yeah, and, one of the and, most realistic attorney moments so because he, he's sparring and trying to figure out what's going to work. Well, and, well again, <laughs> like, it's, it's amazing. Well, again, it's Postman and Always Rings twice. Yeah. It's the same thing as Hume Cronin's character yeah, yeah, showing sure. up, you know, the magnificent lawyer or Michael Lerner in, yeah. in the remake. Yeah. The magnificent lawyer that gets her off because he's just... Yeah, he ties everything into knots. But even the judge isn't sure, but he, he has an answer for everything, and he's kind of coming oh, no. up with things. And he turns around, he's like, "Isn't that what you told me earlier?" And it how is it happened? A, it is a it is a uh, a great special guest star turn. Yeah, and where so- a superstar comes in, has two scenes, and knocks it out of the fucking park. Shows up the leads. Yeah. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly Peter Sellers is there and you're in Lolita and you didn't ask for him, but nevertheless, there yeah. he is. No, it's like, no, yeah. <laughs> suddenly no, it's this like, is like when De Niro does those little, you know, uh, yeah, does those special just, guest star roles and, you know, he has two scenes and comes in there and kicks ass and yeah. turns the whole tables over. Yeah, or Al Pacino you, so, or somebody like that. Yeah. Now, we're talking about these really volatile guys and Jean Rochefort is the opposite of all that. But he still has that movie star charm he just he knows what he has he knows the scenes are built for him and he just kills it he owns that scene and creates like an, a magnificent scene and out it's of it. right when rod steiger leaves the movie yeah. right when we need right somebody we need like him. that right when we absolutely need somebody like that they give it to us yeah and, and I, I was I'm actually talking, i'm liking this movie even more now we talk about it i i have to say i think claude chabrol knew exactly what he was doing with this movie in a way that i don't feel about his other genre based films well, what i find super amazing is that claude chabrol made three movies that year mm-hmm. and they're all basically the, the same i mean they're not the same but they're all these kind of slick thrillers and i haven't seen the other two what are the other two uh death right which was originally called le magician uh, with Franco Nero and Jean Roche- Rochefort. No, I've never heard of that one. And then he did Pleasure Party, Un Party de Plaisir, mm-hmm. which is about a couple that tries swinging with mm-hmm. disastrous results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I was not ever a big Claude Chabrol fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of felt a little bit like you did, I think, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the Hitchcock thing. But for, for my money, Clouseau is the Hitchcock of France. Mm-hmm. And so I never really bought that. But then I saw this movie mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, this was like a really gripping thriller. This was like a really well, and also they shot. Also, by the thriller. way, like I just got to say, this video cassette transfer on Wizard Video is fantastic. It's yeah. solid. It's the vivid. colors are great. I mean, I actually Rich. Rich. I actually think of all the movies we've done on this show since we started, this has the best photography. Yeah, in fact, um, it's just so rich in that 70s film way. You just, you can feel the emotion. You can feel the emotion in it. You can feel the uh, the balanced colors. You can feel the warmth of the color timing. I have to tell you, I, I, I was getting, I think I even told you I was getting kind of a little bit of a Verhoeven feel when Verhoeven did Basic Instinct. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not a big fan of Basic Instinct. I do like Verhoeven, but I'm not a big fan of Basic Instinct. But it's that it was that slick very well produced, mm-hmm. just European enough. Mm-hmm. It plays like a Hollywood thriller. It plays like a clean, tight. Well, it doesn't quite play thriller. like a Hollywood thriller. It doesn't play like a like coma or the a bedroom window or something. It I just meant that it, it was played, tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was tight. But but those it's, it plays like a French film, but tighter and more entertaining than the most of the French genre experiments. Yeah. 
And plus you're in Saint-Tropez. Mm-hmm. Like even like they, he buys her a car, Rod Steiger yeah, yeah. buys his wife a car because that's his, mm-hmm. that's what he can do for her. He can, he give, actually, her, he can give her a stick shift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a Datsun, but in the South of France at that time, that Datsun was the cool car to have. Like, hey, uh-huh. That's a super cool car to have back then. And like Ruby Schneider is just so fashionable and every, and she's like, you know, naked in the beginning mm. and, and with the kite and. She, I'm not the biggest Romy Schneider fan. She's obviously a good actress, but you know. There's a collection of films that she did, and there's a collection of films that Catherine Deneuve did, and I've just always enjoyed Catherine Deneuve's movies more. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think there's a well, – well, there definitely is an ice queen quality to Romy Schneider to some degree. But in this one, she uses the ice queen quality really well to her effect. Yeah, Sharon Stone would have been in the remake of this. Yeah, which I think, is- yeah, yeah, she would have been – except – except yeah, she would have been, except Sharon Stone isn't as opaque – as Romy Schneider is. And it's the opaque quality, the fact that I have yeah. to watch the movie all the way to the end to find out what she really feels. Yeah. But that's part of the quality. That's part of the charm of the movie. And that's part of the charm of her performance. Yeah. So one of the favorite critics on the show, Jim Sheldon, film critic for the, Holly, uh, for, uh, the porno rag, the Hollywood press. Some of the finest criticism, mm-hmm. the history of criticism. He writes, let's not go crazy. All right. <laughs> Well, I like him. Only when you said Porto Rag, I had to take it to the extreme. Yeah. <laughs> in 1978 uh, in Los Angeles, he reviewed Dirty Hands. Now, on these many reviews, most of it is him describing the plot. So I just read the, the top and the bottom. Okay. okay. The Pickfar Theater has reopened with 1975's Claude Chabrol's marital murder Miller that's more laughs than chills due to a totally unsympathetic principles and believe it or don't, mechanical plot machinations. <laughs> and then after he mentions Claude Chabrol, he has in parentheticals, Francis Hitchcockian ripoff artist. <laughs> Occasionally good. <laughs> Occasionally good. <laughs> and then going down to the bottom, before it all ends, there's a real death, a real rape, and a real non-suspension of disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> Romy's firm kraut bod... And Rod's firm, hammy acting give the film a lift. But the piece is too silly. See? Now, he, he seems to be upset that there's like a little bit of comedy in the middle of the movie. But that John, which I'm assuming he's talking about Jean Rochefort. But that is what makes the movie wonderful, actually, is that you have that moment. Gala. Quentin, Roger, you have stumped me this time. Uh. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am unable to find this movie streaming anywhere. I think for a brief point in time, it was on Mubi. So I'm hoping that by the time that this podcast is coming out, for all of you out there in podcast land, that this mm. movie is widely available because it sounds like a blast. Uh, it was available on what? Mubi. Mubi. M-U-B-I. Mubi.com. Mubi, uh, they only show movies for a short window of time. So mm-hmm. they might license a film to show on their service for 30 days, mm-hmm. maybe 60 days. And then there's a slight overlap, but the idea behind Mubi is, you know, it's not like there's an algorithm giving you a 10,000 things and yeah, suggesting yeah, yeah. you something. They've mm-hmm. got like 50 movies at any given time oh, yeah, okay. that oh. are carefully curated. And so somebody at some point wisely caref- carefully curated this film. Yes. Yeah, so I have picked up a DVD from Barnes & Noble for $20, mm-hmm. but 
trying to find the VHS tape of this led me down a little bit of an interesting rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. So I cannot find a VHS tape like yours. I cannot find a non-European VHS tape on eBay of Dirty Hands. Because anybody who's lucky enough to own the wizard video isn't going to sell it on fucking eBay. Exactly. (laughs) But, so I found a few French ones, but you know, it's like 60 euros and I'm trying to not spend that much on a French VHS tape that I cannot play. Well, I stumbled upon a VHS tape from the UK for $1.70 that says it's a promotional copy. Mm. So they say that there are promotional ads in the middle of the VHS, and I am not sure if it's a bootleg or what's going on there. But well, no, there were such things as promotional copies that they would send to video stores or, or retailers and everything just so that they can have it and, and look at it. Usually it's not anything in the middle. It's just, it just usually, it has a bunch of sell through shit on the front and then you watch the movie so you can buy it but then the, but, the, but from time to time it'll say you know this is a promotional copy don't rent it out if you're if they're renting it let us know yeah. <laughs> so yeah i couldn't resist buying my promotional copy of this movie for $1.70 is it the french version or is it the english language version Jim? you know it must be the french version because it has english subtitles apparently well then it's for sure the french so, version <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm guessing it is because or else it just has english subtitles yeah, so okay, we'll see just, but yes yeah, so it's the my... closed caption version <laughs> so yours will be called les innocent au mensal Yes, but when I get my $1.70 VHS tape, I will watch it and hopefully I'll be able to watch it and I will report back on what the heck it is. No, it was very it was it was very entertaining. I was really looking for I I'd known about this box forever and ever and ever. And this was really, really entertaining. And like I said, this, as opposed to some of these other movies we've talked about, this is one, as I'm talking about it, the more I'm liking it as we talk. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I don't care for the last 20 minutes except for the final end, but I've now kind of forgiven the movie because I enjoyed it so much before that. That's how I feel. You know, and also coming off of Illustrated Man and then just getting more Rod Steiger, mm-hmm. I'll take him in any quantity. And so it was so pleasurable to get it. And then kind of stumbling into this great performance by Jean Rochefort. No. By the time we got to the end and, you know, like it. Characters are showing up. We're supposed to be dead. Everybody's got a gun, and everybody else. Yeah. It, it went the way that it that it went, as you said. Uh, you know, I, I was there was enough there that it just I was carried through. I definitely I enjoyed this and love it way more than I like Basic Instinct or anything. Uh, and like I said, like uh, compared to the other Chabrol, look, I've never uh, compared to a lot of the other Chabrol uh, thrillers. I just think it has more punch. It just has more has more teeth. It has well, more this definitely makes knuckle me, power. This definitely makes me want to seek out Pleasure Party and Death Right or or whatever their uh, original mm-hmm. titles were because I want to know what was going on with Chabrol that year. Like I watch this movie and I think, okay, who in this movie is Claude Chabrol? Which is always my question. Who is the director? And mm-hmm. I think he must be Rod Steiger. Mm-hmm. He's Rod Steiger. He's like, like at least emotionally. I mean, he also wrote this movie, correct? I don't uh, know. I, I think he wrote this mm-hmm. film as well. And they all take place in this. It seems like they all take place in the South. Well, that, okay. Well, well, if he's doing, all, well, if he's doing that, that he, you know, he's doing a full Joseph von Sternberg. All right, where the cuckolded uh, masochist, right, is the director character. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The, the director character, and you know, the other one is about swinging in the South of France and that kind of going wrong. Well, and, having said that, like, like uh, uh, this was well, none of those titles actually sound that interesting. However. I'll watch a claustrophobic movie starring Franco Nero and Jean Rochefort. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, that it? sounds really good. Yeah. So can I ask you guys, which Rod Steiger performance did you prefer? Well, I, I have to go with The Illustrated Man. I would actually say The Illustrated Man, at least in the first 20 minutes, is even better written. 
in Dirty Hands, he's having to do a lot of heavy lifting that they're putting on his character that he doesn't really deserve, but he's still pulling it off. He also has to play a somewhat passive character, mm-hmm. whereas he is so vir- terrifyingly virile. Well, okay. In okay. Illustrated yeah, Man. Okay, yeah. That's like saying somebody's a bottom. Yeah, but he's a bossy bottom. All right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's he takes passivity to, to gregarious heights. <laughs> Created by Satan to prey on the living, it feeds on your most secret desires and hidden fears. Dormant for centuries, its time has finally come again. Demonoid, Messenger of Death. Starring Samantha Ager and Stuart Whitman. How can they kill what's already dead? Demonoid, rated R under 17, not admitted without parent. Demonoid, with co-hit The Brood, will be playing August 31st and September 1st on glorious 35mm film at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. For further information, go to thenewbev.com. The New Beverly Cinema, always on film. So the third film, coming after our two Rod Steiger powerhouse performances. Yeah, the monkey in the middle. <laughs> yeah, is uh, uh, a Mexican-slash-American-slash-international production, but basically made out of Mexico. A horror film called Demonoid. Demonoid. Directed by Alfredo Zachariah, who, like Rene Cardona Jr., has directed a whole lot of uh, Mexican horror films and exploitation movies that have actually made their way to these shores. Sure, uh, he also he directed all those Capolina movies. Yeah, and he directed, and he also directed a, a, a swarm ripoff called The Bees. Yeah. He directed an interesting uh, Mexican Western that got released in America called uh, The Bandits with Robert Conrad and mm-hmm. Jan Michael Vincent. I saw Demonoid when it came out theatrically at the Tower Theater in uh, downtown Los Angeles. And I had a blast then, but I like it even more now, frankly, to say. I think I took it a little for granted back then. There was... There's stuff like this playing all the time back then. It was easy to take it for granted. Now I look at something like this and I really, really, really appreciate it. I realize I was jaded back then. I'm no not idea. J- I am not jaded anymore. Yeah. Uh, Roger, why don't you read the back of the box? Well, this is a, uh, a beautiful uh, media home entertainment box. One of their, you know, they have a catalog title style, but it just, yeah. it's just great. It's, no, 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 that box, not only that box great, I mean, I would love to have that original artwork. Well, yeah, the, the poster is fantastic with yeah. its kind of mm-hmm. uh, legend-like demon. And by the, the way, I will say something about that poster. That poster is fantastic, and the movie lives up to the poster. 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. Demonoid, starring Samantha Egger, Stuart Whitman. This is a horrifying tale of demonic possession. While mining deep in the interior of their silver mine, Jennifer Baines, Samantha Egger, and her husband, Mark, Roy Cameron Jensen, discover an ancient temple of satanic worship. They remove a silver coffer in the shape of a left hand to find it contains only dust. Soon after their discovery, Mark and Jennifer's lives change for the worse. Their marriage breaks up and Mark heads to Las Vegas to take up with the gambling crowd. He's possessed by the demonoid. Jennifer turns to Father Cunningham, Stuart Whitman, for help, and the two of them attempt to cast off the spell of the demonoid hand as it continues to possess those who come into contact with it. This movie is in color. This movie is 85 sleek 
and slender minutes long. 1980. That synopsis is strangely detailed and also leaves a ton out at the exact same time. It feels oh, really oh. wrong also in some Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he just goes to Vegas? They don't talk about oh. all the people he murdered yeah, they're, when they're he was marriage, in Mexico? No, but they do mention their marriage breaks up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it actually doesn't break up. He just kills all the miners and leaves, all right? They he, it's not like they he, had a, a marital spat. He entombs them in the mine. He, yeah. he collapses he forces, the mine on he them. He forces them into First of all, I just want to say right off the top, this is my favorite movie of this little batch. Mine too. This was a great, uh, a great find. This movie, I ex- I have been I waiting for the so third little- exploitation movie to beat all the other ones, yeah. and this, this one is the it. show it happened. I expected so <laughs> little, and I got so much more. Demonoid just doesn't stop. It doesn't fucking stop. It doesn't waste a minute. It doesn't waste a frame. Yep. It doesn't waste a scene. No, it doesn't. It it moves. It moves really fast. It, and it's not even, even though it's got a, a standard story of, of uh, it's kind of a, they, they, they put them together. It's, it's a, a crawling hand movie and a demon possession movie. And they kind of put them together and that follows the structure and just, oh, okay, well, I guess it's just going to be a, a, a crawling hand movie. Okay. I got that. But then in the middle, then they, they don't change the mythology. The mythology gets deeper. Yeah. They, they introduce a, they introduce a, a new, mechanism that allows it to, to daisy chain further yeah. through the movie. And then all of a sudden now the second half of the movie has, a, a, it's not a different story, but it's a more complex story. Yeah. And by the way, after after watching stuff like the keep and all the and 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 the relic and all the stuff we've watched to watch a movie with a supernatural reason for why all this is happening and with a a a a, a mythology built around it that one it answers all of our questions yeah. we are not asking any dumb questions about what's going on and once they explain it to it they live up to it all the way and you can follow it from the beginning to the end. That kind of clarity after the stuff we've watched is a blessing. <laughs> the film is sick as fuck. It is nasty. It's dirty. It's got a dirty mind. But it's also fun. Oh, no, it's, it's fun. really it's, fun. It's, it's never dirty well, in, but, that, but, in that filthy way that makes you like no. kind of regret that you went well, there. I, when I say that, I mean it as a positive. Yeah, I, know, right, I, know, know, I know, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm just no, clarifying yeah, for yeah. anybody who... It's, it's, <laughs> Gruesome. It's got a sense of, of of grotesque. It's got a sense of the perverse. Yeah. But the most important thing about it is there's no comedy in it. I mean, there's a little bit of unintentional comedy, but there's no real comedy in it. And that's one of the things that I really like about most Mexican horror films in general. They as, take it seriously. As as Jim Shelton says, the Mexicans take their tacky horror seriously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, and the seriousness of the intention of all the actors, the seriousness of the intention of the director and 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 the scenario was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's moving. And then you add on top of that, Samantha Egger, who is a fantastic actress. And this was during the time that she was doing a lot of exploitation movies. And she's fan. I've never seen her give a bad performance. She in an exploitation elevates movie. this movie. It, it can't be. Like, she. It can't be emphasized enough, enough it, it can't be. how she classes up the production. Well, one. She, and it's, it's also just gratifying that she's taking the movie so seriously. Well, she's a total, she makes you take the movie seriously. Oh, completely. She's a total Hollywood pro. And mm-hmm. even when there's moments where physically it doesn't work, she sells it. Like, for example, mm-hmm. there's a moment in the church. Mm-hmm. I think when 
like there's a cage or something and that she's not supposed to be able to like mm-hmm. get to okay, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. She could just climb over it or around it. Mm-hmm. She figures out how to physically sell it. She's given a hundred percent to make this movie as, as great as it can possibly be. Now, when I, now I like Stuart Whitman, but I, I remember to him thinking that he was just kind of a, a, a worn out performance for him. So I remember I even said that when he came on. Uh-huh. I was wrong. He's actually pretty good in the movie. Well, the the whole thing about this demon hand, mm-hmm. that once it kind of possesses you and kind of becomes you, mm-hmm. and then like you become possessed, it draws out your sin, whatever mm-hmm. that is. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, with her husband, the first thing he does, his once possessed is mm-hmm. he's in Vegas mm-hmm. and he's using that demon hand to do, you know, I don't, I don't play craps, but snake eyes every time, whatever. whatever. No, you get like, like, like 27 snake eyes in a row. Yeah. Like he's, uh, oh, by the way, we have to mention, we have to mention for a second, the guy playing her husband is a character actor. You've all seen if, if, if you watch action movies from the seventies, he's in all the Eastwood movies. He's in all the Bronson movies. You know, he's that schlumpy uh, uh, detective in uh, uh, Chinatown that, that Jack Nicholson beats the shit out of. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he's like, uh, uh, his name is Roy Jensen. Here he's billed as Roy Cameron Jensen. All right. Um, but the thing is, I actually think Roy Jensen and, and Samantha Agger made a really cool couple. I like them. Kind of a weirdly uh, realistic couple, too. I mean, yeah. she, even though well, she looks, is obviously well, he, way well, too good looking for him. Well, no, but, you know, but, but he owes a silver mine. Well, no, but no, no, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say. He's so masculine, I bought it. Well, he is. There's a masculine quality about it. He's like and my, that kind of masculinity can get a Samantha Egger. He's like my Especially dad. Especially if you own a fucking silver mine. He's like my dad. <laughs> yeah. My dad. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I told you that, uh, yeah, yeah. watching this, because, you know, I grew up in, in well, Brazil. Well, you haven't Mexico. told the audience that. Tell, tell them about the beginning of the film. So, like, I find out this movie takes place in Guanajuato, and I immediately get excited, because I, you know, as a, as a kid, lived in Mexico and other places, and Guanajuato is one of them, and my dad is a mining engineer. Mm-hmm. And so, Your dad is Roy Jensen. <laughs> so my dad is Roy Jensen in this movie. So I'm watching and I'm like, okay, well, this is Guanajuato. Mm-hmm. I uh, I know Guanajuato. I used to be like as a little kid. I you know I would be there in the mm-hmm. with the mummies before they weren't even in cabinets back. Then. Yeah, okay, but that's the thing about the movie was the fact is I'm watching it with Roger and then he's like, oh, I lived in Guanajuato. <laughs> All right, and then it's like, oh, apparently this was in Roger's hometown, and he's like, oh yeah, well naturally. Then they go to to the the, the museum where they have the Guanajuato mummies. Well, yeah. Naturally, of course, the Wanawatu mummies. Right? <laughs> Everybody knows about the Wanawatu mummies. Yeah, so I, I mean, I grew up around them, and so it was like watching it for me was it. It was like watching um, what was the other the the Borman film, um, the, the oh, Emerald uh, Forest, Emerald Forest, yeah, which I also lived. Yeah, having, yeah. Oh yeah, right having on. grown up partly in the Amazon with my dad as a yeah, mining engineer, and so these two movies are like whoa. That's the that's that's the Roger growing up double feature, <laughs> Emerald Forest and Demonoid. it's that's the key to understanding me (laughs) also i have to say the film has very well done both special effects and gore effects they don't have a ton of money to pull them off but they way pull them off but they way pull them i will actually go so far as to say i think this is the best crawling hand i've ever seen in any movie that moment where where there's the full body burn going on Mm -hmm. because the hand wants to get rid of the body it's like fuck this body and so it's like next thing you know the guy's on fire Mm -hmm. Ah, and you're and i'm thinking oh my god this is like one of our leads i i I couldn't believe it Mm -hmm. when it falls into the dirt the hand digs itself into the sand everything everything that is so inventive everything (laughs) we're saying is pointing out how clever this movie is this movie is clever 
from beginning to end. Boom, boom. It's, it's so not, much fun to watch. And not only that, one, they're pulling off the crawling hand stuff. Really terrific. But it's not just that they've come up with just magnificent makeup effects. Some of it is just actually directorial cleverness. The yeah. way he shot it. The, they, he figured out the exact angle yeah. to sell the gag. Yeah. And that's directing, man. That's well, what directing is all about, especially when it comes to horror films, especially when it comes to dealing with fantasy. Well... The great Alfredo Zacharias has a massive. Uh, I mean, he's going back into the. 50s, oh no no I think, no well, well, yeah, no no! If you look little up little horror movies, no. If you look up him, you look up Rene Cardona Jr. You're going to see eighty movies. You know? Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I looked it up, and uh, so based on this, based on this movie, I started looking through his work, and I started seeing what are all these Capolina movies, mm-hmm. and I started looking through, and it's, Capolina is this uh, Mexican comedian Gaspar Hanen, mm-hmm. who uh, was sort of a kind of an innocent kind of style of comedy. Looking at this movie made me think, I want to see this guy's comedies. Uh-huh. And one of them is uh, Capolina versus uh, the Mummies, The Terror of Guanajuato. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so he's back in Guanajuato with the Mummies. Oh, now so, that I would like to see, actually. So I, I want to see yeah, that yeah, yeah. Capolina movie in uh-huh. particular. Uh-huh. But uh, there's a whole ton of them. There's, you know, Capolina, mm-hmm. Speedy Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. There's Capolina, Corazon de Leon. There's all, which was the first one that he wrote, actually. No, but I want to say, I want to see a few more of the ones that actually got released in America. And I, I think there's about like, I think there's at least four or something. Can we talk for a minute about the very opening of this movie, which I think is like oh, it's fantastic. Which I was like, this is you, uh, this is like a Roger opening. This is like what I want all my movies to be it's like. It's completely the Roger opening. I'll I'll describe <laughs> yeah, the ending, okay, describe the beginning. It. All right, so it starts off obviously a long time ago, and uh, so this woman. You don't quite know she's a woman at first. Uh, she's in like these monk robes, and she's being chased by these guys, and she's got a sword, and becomes very clear that she's got superhuman strength and she's fucking these guys up. And then a bunch of them get on top of her and they pin her against the wall. And as they pin her against the wall, the monk robe opens up and her boobs fall out. Yeah, and it's, it's just like, a, it's, awesome. it's a <laughs> great boob shot. I mean, it's just a terrific boob shot. Yeah. And then they, they hold her against the, the, the cave wall and they, Cut her fucking hand off. And it, like, and it was shocking. They cut her fucking hand off. Then they take a knife and they stab the hand. And then they before put it can the, climb away. Yeah, and they, yeah, they stab it before it can climb away. And then they put it in this little hand coffin. And that little hand coffin is the best prop of this entire episode. Yeah, we actually if were I saying, could, yeah. if I could own one prop, all right, from as a. For my cinema museum, it would be the, the demon. Coffin. It would be the demonoid hand coffin. Yeah, it, the Mana Sinistra hand. Now, we haven't really described the plot, and uh, uh, media did a very bad job of describing the plot. But I think at this point, we've expressed our enthusiasm enough that if you're still there and we haven't explained the plot, then just watch it. All right. Uh, but one of the things that was surprising about the movie, one. It starts off in Mexico, and like you said, not just Mexico, but where's the place again? Guanajuato. Okay. Then one of the lead characters goes to Vegas, the Sands Hotel in particular. So now a whole section's happening in Vegas. Yeah, which I was totally like, whoa, we're in, suddenly we're in Vegas. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> suddenly we're in Inglewood, California. <laughs> and then the rest of the movie takes place in Inglewood. Yeah. I get, this movie is fantastic. <laughs> Guanajuato? The Sands Hotel in 1979? Yeah. <laughs> and Inglewood? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't go to the fucking forum. Yeah. <laughs> and as this 
hand is making its way from person to person and mm-hmm. kind of possessing them, and then mm-hmm. their hand becomes the hand. Yeah. What? Well, 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 while we're not going to describe the plot, there is a little bit that's vaguely similar to, uh, uh, you know, to the hidden or something about the way things just keep like moving from. Yeah, it's like a daisy chain. It's yeah. Like, and, character to character. But it has its own mythology going on that I don't want to spoil. Well, one of the things that I love about it is that the hand, the sinister hand mm-hmm. or the mano sinistra, which yeah, in uh-huh. Latin means left hand. Well, then, actually, the, the original name of the movie was The Devil's Hand. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, well, they keep calling it The Devil's Hand throughout the whole thing. You can tell that was supposed to be the title. The thing about this hand, though, is it's completely an equal opportunity hand. Mm-hmm. This hand finds its way onto women. This hand finds its way onto men. It mm-hmm. finds its way onto that black cop. It's like mm-hmm. this hand is. How like, great is that moment? But one of the best lines is. <laughs> And the black cop has been possessed by the hand and he wants to cut it off. And he goes to the doctor and he points the gun at the doctor. You cut this fucking thing off. So the guy starts setting up some (laughs) anesthesia. He goes, no needles, no anesthesia, (laughs) just cut. Just cut it off (laughs) in front of her. And and I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) Is is this when she's tied down like Samantha Eggers is tied down? No, she's just in the hospital. She's just in the doctor. They're they're just going, ah. Yeah, when they're cutting off the hand in front of her and she's like, like right Uh, next to it. It's like her expression with her big eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's just so like, And I love when she takes the the priest out and she's like, you know, to to see the grave of, I think of her husband. Uh And he's like, oh, and they get there and it's like, oh, it's been desecrated. She's like, but but father, it's it's more than desecrated. Yeah. It looks as though the, it, the it, grave it, has it, been blown open from within. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> just look at the pieces of wood. It's exploded from the inside. Yeah, right? she's like, people didn't break into this. <laughs> Something broke out. I just love okay, now, the way I, that she I will explains admit, everything. Well, I will admit, she's figuring out everything. She's figuring out the whole, what the hand's motivation is. She's figuring out a uh, simple look at the grave. I mean, you know, she should have her own detective I, I like, show. And she's trying to convince him. And he's like, well, uh, no, it's more likely just, uh, you know, desecration. It's like, but look at it. Yeah, just, <laughs> she's like, just look, look at, at it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and she's so convincing and fun running around on her high heels and mm-hmm. like lifting her big 70s glasses, wearing a, a, a Halston, you know, gown in one moment. And a, I like she I was great. I loved her in this. It made me like a big fan of hers. I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I had seen a few movies that she was in, but I never really thought about her that much. And then mm-hmm. this, I was like, wow, they brought her in. Good call. There's a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, professional actors in this, but yeah. it's mostly, a, you know, an international mm-hmm. uh, exploitation film production. But she comes in and just like. She kills it. Grounds it, kills it. It's probably only like four movies after she did The Brood or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I love also. Yeah. Yeah, I think the last film she had released theatrically by this point was uh, uh, The Exterminator. I like this one better than The Exterminator. I've seen The Exterminator yeah. recently. This, I mean, she's is, like, this delivers more than Exterminator like a does. female Roger Moore or something. She's yeah. just so charming. That's a well good, good way to say it. Gala. Hey guys, well, first off, I have to say it's so funny, Dad, that you said that because that's exactly what Ever said, my younger brother, really? when we were watching that. Yeah, he's like, this is a female Roger Moore. And I didn't make that connection she's at all. charming. You know, she's yeah. super charming. She's like, uh, with that accent. I'm so glad to hear that you guys love this movie because I love this movie too. And I was kind of waiting to see, like, mm-hmm. I knew he, Roger was going to love it. I wasn't sure, Quentin. I mm-hmm. thought Quentin's mm-hmm. going to like this, but I wasn't quite sure. So I'm so glad to hear you guys liked it. 
Because whenever Quentin gives me the list of movies to watch, I always go to my mom and I say, Mom, which one of these would you like to watch? And my mom picked Demonoid. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, I don't know if I want to see the illustrated man. She's been ranting about Demonoid. She my loved Demonoid. My mom loved Demonoid. We, I watched it with my mom and my younger brother over dinner, and we had the most fun time. The transfer on Amazon for rent is beautiful. Mm. It is a wonderful transfer. So anyone out there, go watch it right now. It's for rent on Amazon. My mom, I love this movie. My mom loved it. She won't stop talking about it. Yeah. She was like looking at the screen and she would go, ah! and she would cover her eyes and I would see her peeking through. Like she couldn't <laughs> look away. This movie is creepy. Well, that the way that hand moves around, hand moves, it's a performance. Oh, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to add. When we were watching the movie at a certain point, in, like in the last 30 minutes, right alongside Samantha Egger, right alongside Stuart Women, the hand is a character. I like the hand. Yeah, it's like Nick Castle is the puppeteering. Yeah, I like the hand. It's a character. You and it even kind of starts coming across as a character at a story. It it actually has a touch of a personality. Yeah, yeah. And it makes it. It a has an intention. Yeah. yeah, and a compelling like villain kind of in the yeah. story where there is no and villain. And the way besides it the devil. moves is mm-hmm. just it's it's shocking when it suddenly. That's like a fucking rat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The effects are amazing, and I'm watching and I'm thinking, man, if this was made today, mm-hmm. the CGI would be terrible. Mm-hmm. First, I love when it it's ash and it forms back into a hand. Yeah, I me too. That I, was so cool. It was amazing sculpture. And, and again, like they're not formation. explaining it to us. We're just kind of figuring out the mythology yeah. of it. Oh, okay. After it does this, it does that. Yeah. <laughs> and like when it's jumping through the air, it mm-hmm. is so terrifying. And I love when they're in the church and all of a sudden the doors are locked. And my brother was like, how did it lock the door so fast? I'm like, I don't know. It can jump around. It's a hand. It can go wherever it wants. <laughs> that hand does what it wants to do. Yeah, that yeah, hand yeah. can go lock a door if it wants. This movie feels expensive. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what the budget was on it, but. Well, OK, I'll say I'll add to that, though. OK, not that I have any inside information, but the situation is for the Mexican film industry. This probably was an expensive movie. What, one of the things that you'll notice when you see like uh, uh, especially like Mexican movies or Spanish movies or German movies, or they're just released as an exploitation movie out here. If you actually look up Mexico or Spain that year. Those actually might have been one of the bigger movies that they made at that during during that time. Uh, you know the Rene Cardona Jr. movie uh, uh, Tintorera. Mm-hmm. Okay, in Mexico, that was one of the biggest movies of the year, and it's two and a half hours long. The Mexican version, <laughs> <laughs> but everybody in Mexico knows Tintorera. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they cut it down to 90 minutes and I saw it at the Carson Twin Cinema. <laughs> but well, my point being, though, is uh, for a film made for the Mexican film industry, this probably actually had a couple of pesos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it feels like it does. Like when I watch it, I'm thinking, wow, this is like you're, as you said, you're in Mexico. Well, they've you're taken in, it to the Sands Hotel. They've yeah, taken it to Inglewood. We're all I'm, over. I'm everywhere. And it's also, an epic. Well, if, also, if it has a little bit of money, that means they're probably working with the best technicians in Mexico yeah, at that point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And also, I love that you were with kind of completely different characters by the end of the movie. Yeah, like yeah, you're yeah. just going through people and everyone feels fully fleshed out. Mm-hmm. I don't like miss anything anywhere. And the ending, without giving it away, you could think, okay, an ending like this could be cliche mm-hmm. or it could feel like kind of like I feel betrayed or whatever. 
the ending is so cool yeah. of this movie. Yeah. It's awesome. I love well, it. it also, the it gore also, in this movie is just amazing. Oh, when they crush the head of somebody, the hand yeah, yeah. crushes somebody's head, it is Well, intense. it doesn't seem, the ending doesn't seem cheap in this movie because this movie has had a nasty spirit all the way along. Exactly. It, this, this, evil will always win in this movie. Exactly. <laughs> and my Favorite part of the movie because we talked about the coffin that the hand gets put into. I love when they're she's in the motel and the mm-hmm. hand shows up and she goes to get the coffin and she looks and the hand has gone and just destroyed the coffin. Yeah, right. Yeah. I just love that because the hand's like, you're not putting me back in there. Hell no, I'm not going back in there. Yeah. I just I thought it was a funny like character moment for the hand. I loved it. Hey, <laughs> funny character moment for the hand. No, I, <laughs> no. Yeah, and also I love that train sequence. Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah. Where the hand gets chopped off. Oh, up. unbelievable sequence. It's an unbelievable sequence. The stunts on are- a low budget on, on a movie. low like, budget movie. The stunts are amazing. And then all of a sudden, the hand just kind of crawls and then latches onto the train. Oh, I know. That was and great. Just, it was amazing. And you never know where the hand's going to be. And by the be. way, that shot also, I mean, I was as I was watching it, I was, of course, naturally thinking a little bit about Evil Dead mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the hand running around in that. And I was thinking, I wonder if, you know, this was some kind of influence on that because- the energy is there mm-hmm. like that, that. That Well, I think Oliver Stone's The Hand came out like the year before. Right. And, you know, and that's a, that's a big budget version of something like that. I mean, but before there was like The Crawling Hand, The Beast with Five Fingers. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the many, many hand movies. The, 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 the genre. The subgenre. It's actually a subgenre unto itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this amazing movie, everyone should go watch it. I think it might even be one of my favorite movies that we've talked about. I would say... Pound for pound, it's the best yeah. movie we've talked about. You know what I mean by that? For its fighting weight. For its caliber and its fighting weight. For yeah, its fighting weight. In its class, it's, this it's movie, coming out on top. This well, I'm not is, putting it down. I just mean, you know. Uh, this movie is made by a master in filmmaker. Its, in its weight class, it can for, be beat. For me, it's winning the battle royale right now. So, <laughs> my, It's taking on all comers. <laughs> yeah, everyone, the hand wins all. Demonoid Messenger of Death is available now on Tubi TV US for free with ads. But if ads are a problem for you or you're not in the USA, you can catch Demonoid for free on the Internet Archive. It's in great quality, but has hard-coded subtitles in Spanish. So if that's also a problem for you, you can fork over some dough to rent it on Amazon. My VHS tape uh cost me $19.95, and I have a Video Treasures copy. Mm -mm. So once I get it into my hand... You've got... Shit. All right. We've got this great you know media you know SP funny? version. You've got the I, LP. But you know what's funny? Light ass. But you know what's funny? But it's there. Is that my box is still red. No, I, no I've no. i got the Video Treasures box too. Yeah, but I'm just saying because all the I other- I have two copies of the, the Demonoid other, and I have the Video well, Treasures Well, there was one. this beautiful Japanese copy available and I was staring and I was thinking, hmm, Demonoid, hmm. Somebody will even have to go pick that up. But mm. I will say all the boxes on eBay that are- Red are turning white. Oh, right. I don't know what is up with that, but they are all turning white. Quentin keeps his in the dark, so it's not. He doesn't leave his sitting on a dashboard of his car. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you're gonna put it in the store right by the the sunrise window window for the next ten years. (laughs) Yeah, the uh, horror sci-fi section was in the sun. (laughs) All the tapes are white. If anybody out there has a line on the original artwork for uh, uh, the demonoid poster. Get in touch with us. Yeah, and this movie really it has the like all the promise of Exorcist Two with yeah. visually those kind of mm-hmm. moments are you know 
They're striking. They're fantastic. How dare you bring up something so disjointed? <laughs> well, that's why I said The Promise yes, okay, right. Exorcist 2. I, <laughs> the pro- yeah, I happen to like I know, I Exorcist know, I know, I know, I know. But not as much as Demonoid. <laughs> Everyone go watch it. Glad to hear. Okay, well, hey, before we wrap that up there, it yeah. just so turns out that my the magnificent critic Jim Sheldon of the Porno Rag Hollywood Press also reviewed Demonoid. And he said, Demonoid, originally The Devil's Hand, is an American-Mexican variation on The Hand. See my May 1st review, C+. (laughs) Of such relentless, mechanical, streamlined, 78 minutes, ruthlessness, that it almost possesses a certain countercharm. It's nothing more than a procession of victims with evil triumphant. And it goes down to the whole thing. And then at the end, the mechanical hand or clever direction is convincing, as are the maulings and the mutilations. Resolutely nasty. D. But, hold it now, if you understand where Jim Sheldon's coming from, for him to give Demonoid a D, that means he enjoyed it. That means, okay, here's this piece of shit. I had to watch it. And you know what? I watch a lot of pieces of shit every fucking week. This piece of shit, I didn't mind watching. <laughs> he might have meant file it under D. No, he for no, demonoid. No, no. <laughs> D. Uh, for, D. For me, that's S plus, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, though, no, him giving demonoid a D is, if you understand his rating system, that, like I said, that, that's, it's, he's, yeah, he's saying enjoyable piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of those. Best out there. in class. Yeah, yeah. How about some awards? Should we hand yeah. out some awards? Best film of the show. Well, it, it, we just already said it, but go yeah, ahead. I, 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 I'm just going to go with Demonoid. Demonoid. At too. first, I was like thinking to myself, okay, if this was Dimension Films, uh, 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 it would be Demonoid. If it was Miramax, we would go with Dirty Hands. But no, it's Demonoid. Demonoid. That is the best movie. Frankly, it's one of the only movies we've watched in this thing that that I don't have a problem with the third act, or I don't have a problem with the second. I I, 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 I don't have a problem at all. It yeah, we just, can give it best pacing as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll give it best screenplay. All right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we're, we're all agreement in Demonoid. Demonoid. Yes. Okay, best actor. Well, okay, well. Well, obviously Rod Steiger. Okay, yes, obviously. But does the hand in Demonoid count as an actor? I think supporting actor. Yeah, that would be supporting. <laughs> although, and okay, if we're going to jump it right into supporting actor, I'm going to fight for Jean Rochefort in uh, Dirty Hands, even though uh, the dirtiest hand, the demonoid, uh, is also an excellent supporting I don't actor. think we'll call it acting. I think we'll call it special effects. Uh, okay, uh, I'll concede this time. Okay. Even though it is a character. But that's not acting, but it's a character. Okay, uh, so are we all in agreement that Rod Steiger is the best actor of this episode? Yes. <laughs> if I had Absolutely. seen it, I probably would agree. Yeah. Okay, best actress. Oh, I'm going to go with Samantha Egger. Eggers, because uh, one, I think she elevates the movie. Mm -hmm. Two, I found her absolutely delightful to watch. So you're officially giving Samantha Egger the nod over Romy Schneider. Absolutely. And I think Romy Schneider is, uh, listen, I love Romy Schneider. And I think I mentioned Max and the Junkman, which Mm -hmm. I recommend also to anybody to see. But, and I think Romy Schneider is just fantastic. But I found her, to be honest, she does one thing really well in this movie, but that's all she does. Mm -hmm which is to play that kind of ambivalence all the way through, which is not 
the easiest thing to do. I'm not saying it's like that she's giving. No, that's actually part of the um, bad performance. That opaqueness is one of the things I'm kind of uh, championing. Her her opaqueness that you called it. Yeah, Yeah. that is fantastic. I just loved watching Samantha Eggers throughout uh, Demonoid. Well, I am the huge. She made me want to just follow her. I am a huge Samantha Eggers fan. So the fact that like I've turned you on to her. Totally. uh, Along with Roberta Collins makes me very happy. Gala. I did not have the chance to see Dirty Hands. So I'm also going to have to go with Samantha Eggers because- Women are kind of slim pickings this episode, so Smith Eggers all the way. Actually, more than the episode before last. <laughs> Even more Pelope, so. Pelope, Penelope Ann Miller was the only game in town. <laughs> I could easily throw it to Samantha Egger. I'm uh, Just to break it up a little bit, I'm going to give a little love to Romy Schneider, all right? I, I think you could go either way. If I was just going for entertainment, mm-hmm. uh, I would go for Samantha Egger. I actually think. No, I, actually, I don't agree with this. I don't agree that she has the harder part. I actually think a Samantha Egger definitely has the harder part. <laughs> <laughs> to make this madness seem halfway plausible, all right, is... Uh, <laughs> I just love seeing her running around in a it. tight skirt, like, you know... Never... Okay, you know what? I'm taking it back. Samantha Egger, she, uh, just... <laughs> yeah, Samantha Eggers. She commits, she commits, she commits. She makes us... Not only does she class up the movie, she makes us take it seriously. Yeah. I'm going to um, throw out best economical use of an exterior location uh-huh. to uh, Illustrated Man mm-hmm. because they somehow used that like Thousand Oaks location or wherever they shot it looked like. I mean, that 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 stream? That stream. <laughs> they shot everything there. They shot yeah. the circus tent in the end. They oh, shot, really? Oh, wow. They uh-huh. shot the African veldt there. They shot the, the no, Wisconsin. I'm sure the, the, I'm sure the African, I'm sure they just went to Lion Country Safari and shot the African No, no, well, I, I think that they just stayed at that location and brought well, the lions the, to them. It's LA. The, you can get lions. All you can the get animals, a zebra if you want. All the animals are from yeah. Africa, USA. Yeah. yeah. that was. It's all set up for them to to go to Africa, uh, Lion Country Safari and shoot well, that. Then, Why would they bring a bunch of lions to uh, that river? Best supporting actor. Oh, well, I, I, you already I, said I, it. I said Jean Rochefort is, is who I'm going And for. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. If I was picking a second choice, it would be Roy Jensen because I really liked him in the movie. And I'm going to also throw out best cinematography mm-hmm. uh, on uh, Dirty Hands. Yes, I, which is sleek and beautiful. It's. Uh, I'm serious. I think it's the. It's the. Physical best photography as far as what's ex- what exists in the print when they got through with it. It's the best looking print that we've watched of all the films we've watched. Jean Rabier, the guy who shot this, also I mean, who also did the cinematography for Umbrellas of Cherbourg, mm. Paraplita Cherbourg, which, for my money, mm-hmm. is one of easily one of the most beautiful French movies ever shot. Mm-hmm. He here doesn't do the same thing. Here he brings a much more slick modern. Mm-hmm thriller look it's just lovely beautiful to watch i don't think there really is a supporting actress in this one i don't think so but i'm gonna have to give it to one of the hands i know one of those hands belongs to a woman (laughs) (laughs) i give best supporting actress to the boob girl at the beginning boob girl at the beginning beginning gets it you know i will say i didn't get to see uh dirty hands so i'm gonna have to trust you on best cinematography but i will say the illustrated man in the first 20 minutes in beautiful technicolor 
It is gorgeously shot. Yeah, I agree. And they have some amazing whip pans where it's like it's on the ground and it whip pans up yeah. when he sees the dog. And well, the dog stuff. No, it has good stuff like that. The and, dog. And it has, the dog deserves an award. Best dog. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, best animal performance. Best animal yeah, reaction. Simply incredible. Absolutely. Best animal. <laughs> you know, but like good, like you know. Uh, uh, Did you uh, like uh, those animal reactions? <laughs> yes. I, that, well, because they. Because <laughs> they were good. Because they were good. <laughs> and these weren't Moonraker uh, yeah. animals. Pigeons. It's yeah. not these... like an otter closing its eyes. <laughs> a beaver doing a double take. Yeah. All right. You know? <laughs> when was his name? The duck Peaky or? Uh, uh, peak, peak, as in Pekinese. Peak, as in Pekinese. But it's a Pomeranian. It's a boom! <laughs> He's a like bum. me and him. We're both two booms. I love when the, by the way, when that dog grabs the snake, that he's just killed that garter snake. Yeah. And he's like, let the dog eat the snake. He's going to go eat the snake. Let the dog eat the snake. Yeah. It's, just, it's such a good moment. It's so funny. Ain't nothing good about a snake. <laughs> I see a snake. I kill it. <laughs> he's like, no, it's a snake. It's a snake. What do you don't know about a snake. You see a snake. I kill it. <laughs> I think I have to give best director to Alfredo Zacharias. Oh, for sure. Yeah. In agreement. For sure. I, I, the hand is just. Yeah. He's, he's even Jim Shelton sees the directorial touch of the hand. Yeah, he delivers. <laughs> he delivers. Best scene. Okay. I, I got to say the opening 20 minutes of uh, uh, illustrated man. I, I'm going to go I, with, I, the, I think that counts as one scene. Yeah. 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 Sequence, yeah I'm going to go with the full body burn uh, at the car that's in a, demonoid. That's a moment. I think that's a moment. That's not a scene. That sequence where he like lights himself on fire and the hand buries he itself in the- a moment. So the scene is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. So you, I got to pick a whole scene? Well, <laughs> not just a moment. What's that problem? I mean, I'm just like, <laughs> that's not a scene. There's actually movies that have scenes, all right? That's a moment. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I think mine might be the plastic surgery scene in- demonoid mm -hmm. because i really like the black police officer i like that guy too i think he's a really fun actor that comes in mm -hmm. and i really just like samantha egger's performance there and i love also that the doctor gets inhabited by the hand also yeah and so we get to see the hand run around doing everything right and look as much as i like the opening <laughs> illustrated man Number two might be the opening of Demonoid. <laughs> the boob girl. All right, getting your hand cut off. It's yeah. such a good opening that you're just like, wow. I'm gonna, yeah. I actually thought about it. I'm going to go with Jean Rochefort. Oh, and there his you go. Whole his scene. Uh, defend, that's the real number two Defending Romy Schneider. No, no. That is. That was probably the that scene. That scene could stand on its own. That was probably. And you could just take that scene and show it. That was probably the scene I enjoyed the most because I know what I'm going to get when it comes to the opening 20 minutes of The Illustrated Man. I was not prepared for a scene as good as the Jean Rochefort scene to come in in the middle of the movie yeah. and just sweep us away. Yeah, it's outstanding. This is a, yeah, it's a- This was a good, this is a good week for me. I really enjoyed all, to be honest, I enjoyed all of these movies. Yeah, me too. So. Me too, me too. Okay, best moment was the burn. Yeah, with the with the burn, with pushing the hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hand going underground. And when I say best moment, it can be best, it can be pretty a shot, it can be best visual, it can be, you know, it's a moment. I still think I'm gonna have to go with, Demonoid, to be honest. I just love Demonoid. Go ahead, go ahead. But m my favorite moment was when the hand turned from Ash to a hand. Okay. I think it was just a really beautiful moment that I kind of wasn't expecting it to look that good. Mm -hmm. And I, I can almost go for the kite falling on Romy Schneider's derriere. 
And that was no, I, 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 that was that was a really great way to set up a movie. That is to a begin great way. the movie with that. If we're gonna okay, best moment also means best visual moment, whatever. Yeah. Sure. I'm gonna go with the moment of uh, um, Rod Steiger oh. lounging on the couch in full head to toe illustrated oh. man guys. Just that image of him uh, naked lying down from head to toe with uh, the illustrations. The physicality of the illustrated man is one of the things that movie did yeah. perfectly. They pull it off. I mean, they, they that, pull it. They, we, it's easy to take it for granted how good it looks. And, and they continue it. He gets up. He walks through the house naked, mm-hmm. not in an obvious or a way mm-hmm. where they're trying to like hide anything. It mm-hmm. just it feels very organic. Well, he doesn't natural. look naked because he's covered with all this shit. Because he's covered in tattoos. But yeah. they're, also, skin they're also illustrations and skin, skin illustrations. illustrations. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, when I'm walking around in these tattoos, <laughs> I ain't naked. These are coming to life and they, and they bring up things to you. And by the way, I told you about calling them tattoos and I'm going to make me tell you again. <laughs> they are skin illustrations. He is a very tense, bottled up guy. <laughs> okay. So to Rod Steiger and all the ships to see, thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next time on the Video Archives podcast. Be kind, rewind. Thanks, everyone. At least re- rewind like halfway. <laughs> The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muallam. This episode featured additional production by Raven Goldston. We now have Video Archives merch. Go to podswag.com to see everything we have in stock. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives. I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 